Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. This is your host, Joe, and uh, I am recording this in the middle of April, Uh, so it's been a a while since our last episode came out. Um, Didn't mean to take that much of an extended hiatus, but uh, life gets in the way sometimes. And uh, I don't really talk about my personal life a whole lot on this podcast, but I thought I'd just do a little quick update on what's been going on and why I haven't uh, been releasing new episodes. Uh, I uh, had a baby. Uh, Well, more specifically, my wife had a baby. Uh, It is mine. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so back in December when the last episode, or like right at the end of December when the last episode came out, I was working on a couple new episodes, but then uh, my wife was due at the end of February, so... The last uh, couple of the months before she gave birth was uh, about getting just everything in the apartment ready for the baby, getting uh, the nursery set up and all that. So that just took up a lot of my time. And I did record an episode right before she was born, but the, the audio on that was really weird and I just didn't like how it turned out. So I decided to just scrap that and wait to do a new recording. But uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, children, uh, newborn infants are a lot of work. <laughs> uh, and I was very sleep deprived and uh, it's been uh, definitely been an adjustment um but very i mean i don't know it's uh uh children are amazing and uh i love this little baby girl more than i can describe um so i won't (laughs) i won't go into it too much but um but yeah so yeah so it's just been kind of weird trying to get uh back into a space where i can record again and i'm not um focused on the child too much um and uh my wife was very nice enough to uh give me an afternoon alone so i could record and she took the baby out to uh to the in-laws and got uh so i'm doing this recording while they're gone and uh i'll try to and i have another episode written already so hopefully i will be able to record that as soon as possible and uh and then i'll have to get back to writing again which we'll see how that goes but uh anyways i fully intend to finish this series uh even though it's uh it's been a minute but so in the last episode uh, we talked a lot about the fighting around the devil's den Hawks ridge and little round top so in this episode we're going to be talking we're going to be kind of picking up where we left off again kind of the way this battle works it's very difficult to just kind of talk about it chronologically because you're just jumping back and forth too much so but with this one we're going to be focusing on the areas of the battlefield that include the wheat field the peach orchard and the battle for cemetery ridge and this of course is your weekly reminder to please subscribe to the podcast there will be more updates uh i promise uh like the facebook page uh if you subscribe to an app that allows you to rate the podcast please rate it five stars that will help us uh, with the algorithm get more people to listen to the show uh and thank you for your continued support and without further ado let's start the show James Longstreet watched on as Hood's division slammed against Hawks Ridge, the Devil's Den, and Little Round Top. In contrast to some analyses of Longstreet's performance on the second day of battle, Lee's old warhorse was quite active during the attacks of his corps on July 2nd. Around 30 minutes after the fighting had erupted along the southern portion of the Union line, he issued orders to his other division commander, General Lafayette McClaws, to advance his division on Hood's left. Originally, it was McClaws who was to open the attack, but the circumstances that led to this plan had changed, and McClaws' four brigades waited west of the Rose Farm in the Sherfy Peach Orchard west of the Emmitsburg Road. Lafayette McClaws, and uh, in the past few episodes, I believe I've been mispronouncing his name. Uh, I pronounced it uh, the French way, Lafayette, um, and it, it's interesting, Lafayette and Lafayette, It's a, you'll see a lot of those names um towns particularly in the south uh sometimes you'll see the name uh Fayetteville like Fayetteville North Carolina which I have family there or Fayetteville Arkansas uh in my hometown there was Lafayette High School it's a reference to the French-born uh Revolutionary War and then later a uh, French revolutionary figure the Marquis de Lafayette but you will find that a lot of times Americans will uh Americanize it and pronounce it Lafayette or just Fayette for short 
somewhere I was reading about McClaws recently, and it said he went, uh, he pronounced it Lafayette, not Lafayette. So apologies, we will use the correct pronunciation from now on. Lafayette McClaws was, like most division commanders in the Army of Northern Virginia, professional soldier through and through. He attended West Point and graduated 48th out of 56 in the class of 1842. He was commissioned as an infantry lieutenant and fought in General Zachary Taylor's army during the Mexican War. Shortly after that, he was married to General Taylor's niece, Emily Allison Taylor. And he was also technically related to Confederate President Jefferson Davis, whose first wife was Zachary Taylor's daughter. McClaws was 40 when the Civil War began. He resigned his U.S. Army commission and moved his way up from command of a Georgia regiment to division command during the Peninsula Campaign. He served under his former West Point classmate and friend, James Longstreet, though their relationship was strained over the course of 1863. Unlike McClaws, his four brigade commanders were not West Pointers, and you'll notice that all of them shared a rather similar background. Like Hood's division, McClaws' brigades were stacked with two in front and two in reserve. In front, on the right, was a brigade of South Carolinians led by Brigadier General Joseph B. Kershaw. Kershaw was a 41-year-old South Carolina native. He had been born into a wealthy, slave-owning plantation family in Kershaw County, named for his grandfather, also named Joseph. In addition to being a member of the elite planter class, he was also a lawyer, state senator, and served briefly as a lieutenant in the U.S. Army during the Mexican War. In early 1861, he was commissioned as a colonel and given command of the 2nd South Carolina Infantry and was present at both the Battle of Fort Sumter and the First Battle of Bull Run. He'd been promoted to brigade command early in 1862. On Kershaw's left was Brigadier General William Barksdale's Mississippi Brigade. Like Kershaw, Barksdale was 41. He was born and grew up near Nashville, Tennessee as part of a slaveholding planter family. And like Kershaw, he was also a lawyer, though he gave up the legal profession after he moved to Mississippi. There, he became the editor of the pro-slavery newspaper, the Columbus Democrat. And, also like Kershaw, he served as an officer in the Mexican War, in a Mississippi volunteer regiment. From 1853 to 1861, he served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, and was known as one of the most virulent pro-slavery politicians in the country, part of a block of the democracy known as the Fire Eaters. He was a strong proponent of the institution of slavery, and later secession. He was alleged to have been present at the vicious caning of anti-slavery Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner by the fire-eating South Carolina Democrat, Representative Preston Brooks. In 1858, Barksdale participated in one of the most infamous congressional brawls, when a debate over the Kansas Territory erupted in a fistfight on the House floor. Barksdale tried to attack Elihu Washburn of Illinois, when Washburn's brother, Cadwalder, and John Bowie Knife Potter, great nickname, both Republicans from Wisconsin, came to his defense. They managed to knock off Barksdale's wig, which he embarrassingly put on backwards. Barksdale's rug being put on the wrong way caused both sides to break out into laughter, which ended the melee. He predictably resigned from Congress following Mississippi's secession ordinance and rose up to brigade command during the Peninsula Campaign. McClaw's two reserve brigades, like Hood's division, were both from Georgia. Behind Kershaw was Brigadier General Paul Sims' brigade. Sims was 48 and grew up in a wealthy, slaveholding family on Monfort's plantation in Georgia. After graduating from the University of Virginia, he returned to Georgia and became a successful banker and slave-owning cotton planter. Though he had no real military experience prior to the war, he was active in Georgia's state militia, which was common for members of the slave oligarchy. After commanding a Georgia infantry regiment for the first year of the war, he was promoted to brigade command just before the Peninsula Campaign. Finally, behind Barksdale was Brigadier General William T. Wofford. Wofford grew up on a plantation in Bartow County, Georgia, northwest of Atlanta, and after attending Franklin College, which is now part of the University of Georgia, he served as a captain of a Georgia volunteer regiment in the Mexican War. Upon returning to Georgia, he returned to life as a slaveholding planter, got involved in state politics, and also became a lawyer. As I alluded to earlier, McClaws was not happy with Longstreet's micromanaging on July 2nd. A few days after the battle, he wrote to his wife Emily, quote, General Longstreet is to blame for not reconnoitering the ground and for persisting in ordering the assault when his errors were discovered. During the engagement, he was very excited giving contrary orders to everyone and was exceedingly overbearing. I consider him a humbug, a man of small capacity, very obstinate, not at all chivalrous, exceedingly conceited, and totally selfish. If I can, it is my intention to get away from his command, unquote. In the immediate aftermath of the battle, McClaws seems to have singularly blamed Longstreet for the poor plan of attack and its sloppy execution, though his views softened in the years after the war. 
Since General Joseph Kershaw's brigade was in front and closest to Hood's division, they were to lead the attack of McClaw's division. This is from his post-battle report. Quote, Hood's division was then moving in our rear, toward our right, to gain the enemy's left flank, and I was directed to commence the attack as soon as General Hood became engaged, swinging around toward the Peach Orchard, at the same time establishing connection with Hood on my right, and cooperating with him. It was understood he was to sweep down the enemy in a direction perpendicular to our then line of battle. I was told that Barksdale would move with me and conform to my movement. These directions I received in various messages from the Lieutenant General and the Major General commanding, and in part by personal communication with them. Under my instructions, I determined to move upon the Stony Hill so as to strike it with my center, and thus attack the orchard on its left rear. Accordingly, about 4 o'clock when I received the orders to advance, I moved at once in this direction, gradually changing front to the left. The numerous fences in the way, the stone building and barn, and the morass, and a raking fire of grape and canister rendered it difficult to retain the line in good order, but notwithstanding these obstacles, I brought my center to the point intended." Kershaw makes one little understandable error in that he was wrong about the time. He said he was ordered forward about 4 p.m., but it was probably closer to 5. They marched east across the Emmitsburg Road and the Rose Farm behind and slightly to the north of where General Tyke Anderson of Hood's division ended up attacking. Waiting in defense was originally just the brigade of Colonel Régis de Trobriand, the French aristocrat, but his position was also bolstered by Colonel George Burling's brigade. General de Trobriand's line was weakened to support Ward's position on Houck's Ridge when the fighting there was still raging. His 4th New York Infantry and the 6th New Jersey of Burling's Brigade covered Ward's retreat in the Plum Run Valley. Reinforcements from General George Sykes' 5th Corps arrived to secure de Trobriand's right flank. It was two brigades from the division of Brigadier General James Barnes. Barnes was the second oldest general in the Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg. He was 61 years old and a native of Boston. He attended West Point and graduated 5th in the class of 1829. Two notable things about that, he was in the same graduating class as Robert E. Lee, and when he graduated, he was 28, several years older than most West Point cadets. After being commissioned as an artillery officer, he spent most of his Army career as a professor at the U.S. Military Academy until he resigned his Army commission and went into the railroad business in the late 1830s. After the outbreak of the Civil War, he went back into military service as the commander of the 18th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, which he led until his promotion to brigade command in the summer of 1862. Barnes only led the 1st Division of the 5th Corps because its commander, Brigadier General Charles Griffin, had fallen ill about a month prior and was still too sick to lead his troops into the field. Three brigades made up the division, one of which was Colonel Strong Vincent's, which we talked about in great detail in the last episode. The other two were Barnes's brigade, whose temporary commander was Colonel William Tilton, a Massachusetts businessman, and the brigade of Colonel Jacob Schweitzer, a Pennsylvania lawyer. Both began the war as junior officers. The Trobriand's brigade faced southward toward Rose's Woods, basically perpendicular to Ward's brigade before it retreated. His leftmost regiment, the 17th Maine, was positioned behind a stone wall, and the rest of the brigade lined up along a small stream that branched off of Plum Run, sometimes referred to as Rose Run. Tilton's brigade went into line on Trobriand's right, and mostly faced southward. His right was refused to face the west as well. Schweitzer's brigade took up a position on the modest elevation on the Rose property, usually referred to as the Stony Hill, and was angled mostly to the west. Tyg Anderson's Georgia brigade went into two directions. The 11th and 59th Georgia Infantry regiments attacked Ward's brigade on the northern position of Houck's Ridge, and were part of the final push to capture the ridge in Devil's Den. To their left, the 8th and 9th Georgia went to work against Trobriand's brigade and a couple of regiments of Burling's brigade. They came through Rose's Woods, went into a small ravine created by Plum Run, and marched up the slope toward the Federal line. The soldiers of the 110th Pennsylvania heard the all-too-familiar sound of the Rebel yell coming from the woods. They expected the Rebel infantry to follow, but to their surprise, a small stampede of cattle and hogs stormed toward their line. The animals, which had been grazing on the Rose farm, had been spooked by the advancing Georgians and made a mad dash for safety. But shortly after, Anderson's men emerged and both sides became engaged in combat. The fighting was intense. The Federals managed to slow the rebel attack, but the Georgians kept on coming. Both sides were extremely close to one another. Their lines were within about 75 yards apart. De Trobriand and Berlin's regiments were afforded some protection with the Stone Wall and the Stony Hill, while Anderson's men took cover along the banks of Plum Run. The Federals were outnumbered by the attacking Confederates. Probably not by a great margin, but the pressure was beginning to mount. 
The 115th Pennsylvania and the 8th New Jersey began to fall back, which exposed the right flank of the 17th Maine. After Ward's brigade abandoned Houck's Ridge, the other two regiments of Anderson's brigade joined the attack on Detrobrion and Burling. The 11th Georgia unleashed a devastating volley on the 17th Maine and charged their position along the stone wall. Despite climbing the wall and temporarily planting their flag on it, the Mainers withstood the charge, rallied, and pushed back the Georgians. The 8th and 9th Georgia charged against the right of 17th in the center of Detrobrion's line, but their position on the southern slope of the Stony Hill gave the defenders a slight advantage. General Anderson worried that his brigade was in danger at this point and ordered them to fall back to the safety of the woods to reform and attack again with the help of Kershaw's brigade, which was supposed to be advancing on his left. Anderson gave orders to his regimental commanders and then rode off to consult with Colonel William de Saucher, commander of Kershaw's rightmost regiment, 15th South Carolina. Anderson wanted to make sure that their attack was coordinated properly with his own. After the short conference, he rode back to his own brigade when a Union mini-balls hit him in the right thigh. The wound was severe enough to necessitate his removal from the battlefield. Command of the brigade probably would have passed to Colonel Francis H. Little of the 11th Georgia, but he too was wounded only a few minutes before. A little second in command, Lieutenant Colonel William Luffman, took Tig Anderson's place. Anderson would spend the rest of the summer recuperating, but eventually returned to command of his brigade in the fall of 1863. During a brief lull in the fighting, Barnes's two brigades deployed on the Stony Hill. Both he and his subordinates worried about their position because there was a large gap about 300 yards between his right and the Union position at the Peach Orchard that was only protected by some infantry skirmishers and a few batteries of artillery. He requested reinforcements to be sent, but there were none available. General Burney, in fact, asked de Trobriand to send regiments to support Grant's brigade at the Peach Orchard, but the Frenchman knew that another attack on his own position was imminent, and he responded to Burney's request with his own call for more troops. At this point, no units could reasonably be moved without creating another gap, and had to fight it out where they were. Kershaw's South Carolinians awaited the signal to advance. McClaw's artillery battalion commander, Colonel Henry C. Cabell, ordered three guns to fire in succession. This was the opening salvo of the attack. After the third shot, there was silence from the artillery. Kershaw's brigade began their advance, and Cabell's guns resumed shelling federal positions on the Stony Hill and around the Peach Orchard. South Carolinians advanced in good order. After they climbed over the fences bordering the Emmitsburg Road, the brigade split into two directions. The 3rd, 7th, and 15th South Carolina regiments went around the Rose Barn and headed for Barnes' position at the Stony Hill. The 2nd and 8th South Carolina regiments and the small 3rd South Carolina battalion angled northward toward a gap in the Union line occupied only by artillery. Approximately 30 guns were positioned on the high ground of the Peach Orchard down the Wheatfield Road. The Federal gunners went to work firing shells as quickly as they could at the advancing rebels. As Kershaw's Carolinians neared the roaring cannons, coordination broke down, and orders were misconstrued. The artillerymen unleashed canister rounds at the advancing rebels, which tore great holes in their battle line. Their formation was quickly coming apart. In a short time, about a third of Kershaw's left wing was wounded or dead, though they reformed and continued on toward the Peach Orchard. This was from the account of Private John Cox of the 2nd South Carolina Infantry. Quote, Well, just as our left struck the depression in the ground, every federal cannon let fly at us with grape. Oh, the awful deathly surging sounds of those little black balls as they flew by us, through us, between our legs, and over us. Many, of course, were struck down, including Captain Pulliam, who was instantly killed. Then the order was given to double quick, and we were mad and fully determined to take and silence those batteries at once. We had gotten onto level land of the federal guns when the next fusillade of grape met us. We were now so close to the Federal gunners that they seemed bewildered and were apparently trying to get their guns to the rear. But just then, and ah me, to think of it makes my blood curdle even now, nearly 50 years afterward, the insane order was given to right flank. Of course, no one ever knew who gave the order or any reason why it was given. General Kershaw denied being responsible for it, but somebody must have been. Why, in a few minutes, the whole brigade was jumbled up in a space less than a regiment behind a rocky, heavily wooded bluff with the right flank in the air, close to that historic scarecrow, the Devil's Den, and also Little Round Top, quite near. With our left flank disconnected and wholly unsupported for a mile or more, we were truly in a box, liable to be captured or annihilated at any moment." Unquote. The soldiers of the 118th Pennsylvania waited, mostly lying down on the ground in a prone position. In the tension before the fighting erupted, a nameless Pennsylvania private felt something hit his neck, jumped up and shouted, Oh, I'm shot! I'm a dead man! Shot clean through the neck! The man was not shot, however. 
A rabbit, which had been spooked by the advancing Confederates, tried to jump over the Federal line and land on the soldier's neck. His cries about being wounded were a joke that caused all the soldiers nearby to break into nervous laughter. <laughs> After that brief moment of levity, the battle flags of several South Carolina regiments were seen marching rapidly toward them. Pennsylvanians watched on as the line came closer and closer. Finally, after what probably felt like a lifetime of anticipation, the order to fire was given. Almost simultaneously, three regiments of Tilton's brigade unleashed a volley of musketry. Only the 1st Michigan Infantry held their fire until Kershaw's men were nearly upon them, and then they fired their rifles in unison. Dozens of the Carolinians went down, and the momentum of the advance was broken for a moment. They quickly regained their composure and advanced again toward the Wolverines and returned the favor. With only about 600 men, Tilton's brigade was one of the smallest in the Army of the Potomac. Kershaw's brigade was nearly three times its size. Faced by half of the South Carolinians, they were still outnumbered. The Michiganders took heavy casualties. Its commander, Colonel Ira Abbott, was wounded and had to be taken to the rear. Shortly after his replacement, Lieutenant Colonel William Throop was also wounded. Private Robert G. Carter fired at the advancing rebels when the soldier next to him, Private Charles Phillips, was hit by one of the first shots fired at their line. Carter later wrote that he heard a, quote, thud, a sickening, dull, cracking sound, his face streaming blood, which filled his eyes and nose and gurgled in his mouth, unquote. Phillips collapsed. His head hit Carter's foot. Carter knelt down and turned over his body, but Phillips was dead. Kershaw was joined on the right by Anderson's brigade, who renewed their attack against Detrobrion. The battlefield was covered by a thick cloud of smoke, making it nearly impossible to see for much more than a few yards in any direction. Captain George Winslow's Battery D of the 1st New York Light Artillery blasted away from their position in the wheat field. 17th Maine, which continued to hold the stone wall on the southern end of the wheat field, was running low on both ammunition and able-bodied men. They'd already held out against multiple attacks from Anderson's Georgians, but it didn't seem like they'd be able to hold for much longer. As the two Confederate brigades continued to press the Federal line, it began to give way, and the South Carolinians were able to fairly easily capture the Stony Hill. What had occurred would be the subject of great debate amongst the officers who were present. General Barnes, still concerned with the gap on his right, ordered Tilton's brigade to maneuver to the right to better protect their flank against Kershaw's attack, and Schweitzer's brigade to fall back. Barnes would later be criticized for his decision to fall back without orders, and many 3rd Corps officers accused him of cowardice. Detrobriand alleged that if they'd held, he would have ordered a counterattack against the Confederates. Barnes defended his actions by saying that the retreat was necessary, and they did so in good order and continued to fight. He himself was wounded in the action and maintained command of the two brigades. And he had reason to fear that they couldn't hold against Kershaw and Anderson. Three more rebel brigades would be joining the fight shortly. But his order to fall back was probably premature and had been done without permission from General Sykes. And without Tilton and Schweitzer holding the western side of the Stony Hill, de Trobriand was also reluctantly forced to order his men to fall back through the wheat field. Now, the Confederates were in possession of the Stony Hill, Rose's Woods, and Houck's Ridge. Just before the battle had begun, Major General Winfield Scott Hancock watched Sickles' corps file into position with amazement. Hancock remarked to his nearby officers, quote, Gentlemen, that is a splendid advance, but those troops will be coming back again very soon, unquote. He and some of his subordinates, including Division Commander General John Gibbon, rode closer to see what was happening. He also ordered his leftmost division, led by Brigadier General John C. Caldwell, to move to support the beleaguered Third Corps. Caldwell was a 30-year-old Vermonter who had settled in Maine and worked as a teacher and then as a school principal before the war. Despite his total lack of military service, he was elected colonel of a Maine infantry regiment, quickly rose up to brigade command. Though at times he showed personal bravery, and having received multiple combat wounds, he'd been accused at least once of poor leadership and cowardice in battle. When Hancock was promoted to command of the 2nd Corps, it was Caldwell who was chosen to replace him. So it seemed that with his reputation somewhat tarnished, and now leading his commander's old division, he had a lot to prove on July 2nd. As his men maneuvered into marching columns and moved to the south, they ran into Tilton and Schweitzer's brigades of Barnes's division as they were making their way to the front. Caldwell's division was temporarily halted, 
Hancock again turned his attention to the Third Corps, and Riley repeated his earlier quip, quote, Wait a moment, you will soon see them tumbling back, unquote. After the battle had been raging for at least an hour and a half, he was right. The Union line had been pushed back by the Confederate tide. An officer from Meade's staff rode up and begged Hancock to support the Fifth Corps. He looked at the commander of his old division and said, quote, Caldwell, get your division ready, unquote. Caldwell's division had four brigades, all of which were under strength from years of attrition. The first was led by Colonel Edward Cross, a 31-year-old New Hampshire native, and pre-war newspaperman, silver mine investor, army scout, and sometime Indian fighter. He had a reputation for a volatile temper in combat and was known to wear a red bandana instead of a hat or kepi. On the morning of July 2nd, Hancock noticed that he was wearing a black bandana. He allegedly approached Cross and said to him, quote, Colonel Cross, this day will bring you a star, unquote which meant that he'd be promoted to brigadier or one-star general. Cross shook his head and replied, quote, No, general, this is my last battle, unquote. It seemed that Cross had some sort of presentiment, or a premonition of death, which was a common occurrence of the Civil War. To me, it's a rather fascinating phenomenon that is likely the result of a deeply religious society trying to deal with the horrors of war and the randomness of death. Have you seen your fellow soldiers, men and boys you grew up with, die by the hundreds in battle after battle, it doesn't seem like much of a stretch to come to the conclusion that you'd be next. I think in some way they're trying to take some sort of agency in the matter. Their death isn't just some random occurrence, but rather a predetermined fate assigned by God. This is a passage from Company H, or a sideshow of the Big Show, a Confederate soldier who fought in the 1st Tennessee Infantry Regiment. Quote, Presentiment is always a mystery. The soldier may at one moment be in good spirits, laughing and talking. The wing of the death angel touches him. He knows that his time has come. It is but a question of time with him then. He knows that his days are numbered. I cannot explain it. God has numbered the hairs of our heads, and not a sparrow falls without his knowledge. How much more valuable are we than many sparrows? Unquote. Watkins would go on to tell the story on the eve of the Battle of Chickamauga. The soldier who was touched by the Death Angel's wing was a man named Bob Stout, who asked his comrades to return his valuables to his father, but they could keep the rest of his equipment. The following day, he was killed when a cannonball tore through his body. On the other hand, Captain Wilbur Hinman of the 65th Ohio Infantry wrote this after the war, quote, There were always some who had, or thought they had, presentiments of death, just before going into a battle. And it was their habit to place money, watches, and other valuables in the possession of comrades who they seemed to think would be more fortunate, although in every respect as likely to fall as themselves. They did not on this account shrink from danger, Indeed, there was no more sublime courage than that which carried a soldier with unfaltering step into the enemy's fire when he believed he was marching to his death. It is not probable that those whose minds were clouded by presentiments suffered any greater ratio of mortality than those who were free from such forebodings. The writer was twice made the custodian of the effects of a comrade who was always sure he would be killed. The third time, he had a presentiment that the writer would be killed too, and put his watch and money into the hands of another. The latter was taken prisoner, and the valuables were gobbled by his captors. After that, the comrade had no more presentiments and acted as his own treasurer. He went through every battle in which the regiment participated and was not even touched." Unquote. Caldwell's 2nd Brigade remains arguably the most well-known of any unit of the Army of the Potomac, the Irish Brigade. Organized early in the war by the 48er and Irish rebel leader Thomas Francis Marr, the Irish Brigade was mostly made up of Irish immigrants from New York City, Boston, and Philadelphia. Its most famous regiment was the 69th New York Infantry, often known by the nickname given to them by R.E. Lee, Fighting 69th, which is still an active unit in the New York National Guard. The Irish are usually overrepresented in pop culture depictions of the Civil War, especially when compared to the Germans who volunteered in much greater numbers and are usually omitted from the story of the war. There's a scene in the movie Gangs of New York where Irish immigrants, fresh off the boat, are immediately conscripted into the Union Army. That document makes you a citizen. This one makes you a private in the Union Army. Now go fight for your country. Next! Sign here, sir. Or make your mark. Lincoln. 
Same for the cartridge case. Where are we going? I heard Tennessee. Where's that? There is nothing here but war Where the murdering cannons roar And I wish I was at home In dear old Dublin Of course, this kind of thing did happen, especially once volunteer numbers dropped and conscription was used to bolster the thinning ranks of the various federal armies. The impoverished Irish often joined for bounties or were paid to be replacements for wealthy draft dodgers, which was legal practice. But the Irish often saw the Civil War as a conflict that was not theirs. The most fervent supporters of the war were New England Yankees, who were often extremely anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant. Many Republicans were former know-nothings, whose ideology was based in Protestant nativism. Nevertheless, thousands of Irishmen would fight and die in Union armies. At its peak strength in mid-1862, the Irish Brigade numbered about 3,500 soldiers and officers. A year later, that number was just over 500. In the Army of the Potomac, only the Iron Brigade and the 1st Vermont Brigade sustained more combat deaths during the course of the Civil War. They had suffered particularly high casualties at Antietam and Fredericksburg. Their commander, General Thomas Marr, repeatedly asked for permission to recruit new soldiers to bolster the brigade's strength, but was denied each time. He resigned his commission just after Chancellorsville, largely due to poor health. The brigade's new commander was Colonel Patrick Kelly, a 41-year-old Irish immigrant who settled in New York and was a successful merchant before the war. Shortly before they entered the fight on July 2nd, Reverend William Corby, a Catholic priest and chaplain assigned to the 88th New York, climbed atop a small boulder and gave a speech to the soldiers in which he added, quote, The Catholic Church refuses Christian burial to the soldier who turns his back upon the foe and deserts his flag, unquote. After this, he gave the prayer of absolution in Latin to the Irishmen. Major St. Clair Mulholland, the 116th Pennsylvania, wrote later that the brigade let out a cheer that, quote, rose and swelled and re-echoed through the woods, making music more sublime than ever sounded through cathedral aisles." Unquote. Caldwell's 3rd Brigade was led by Brigadier General Samuel K. Zook, a 42-year-old Pennsylvania native who worked as a telegraph operator and later as the superintendent of the Washington and New York Telegraph Company. Though he never joined the Army prior to 1861, he was fascinated by military life and was active in the militia scene in both Pennsylvania and New York, which led him to receive a colonel's commission in the first year of the Civil War. By 1862, he was promoted to Brigadier General and given a brigade. Lastly was the brigade of Colonel John R. Brooke, a 25-year-old native of Pennsylvania. Despite his young age and total lack of military experience, he became a captain of an infantry regiment in 1861, and after seeing no combat at the First Battle of Bull Run, he was commissioned as a colonel and given command of a regiment. Following the Battle of Chancellorsville, he was promoted to brigade command. After receiving directions from General Sykes as to where they should go, Caldwell led his division down the dirt road by the Trossel Farm and then turned west into Trossel's Woods on the eastern edge of the wheat field. Cross's brigade entered the wheat field first. 850 soldiers from New Hampshire, New York, and Pennsylvania advanced against Anderson's brigade and the remnants of Benning's and the Texas brigade still in the vicinity. Soldiers of Hood's division held the stone wall previously occupied by the 17th Maine between Rose's Woods and the Wheatfield. Colonel Cross gave orders to his subordinates and then walked the line behind the 5th New Hampshire when a rebel sharpshooter behind a boulder about 45 yards away fired a musket at the brigade commander. Sergeant Charles Phillips returned fire and killed the sharpshooter. Cross had been hit in the abdomen and had to be removed from the battlefield. The following day, he died. His last words were, quote, I did hope I should see peace restored to our distressed country. I think the boys will miss me. Say goodbye to all. Unquote. Unfortunately, he probably wasn't missed, because Cross had the reputation of being a rather tyrannical officer. Stepping up to take his place was Colonel H. Boyd McKean of the 148th Pennsylvania. McKean led the attack against Anderson's brigade. They came on so fast that many rebel skirmishers in the wheat field were captured before they could retreat. The Georgians and Texas behind the stone wall fired a volley at the attackers, but the Yankees drove them from the wall back into the cover of the woods. General Zook's brigade then advanced through Trossel's woods where they ran into the retreating soldiers of Barnes' division, which caused some confusion as they tried to avoid shooting their fellow soldiers. Once they'd passed through, Zook led his New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians in an attack against Kershaw's right flank at the base of the Stony Hill. The wheat field was becoming a real hotspot. Union artillery along the Wheatfield Road blasted at Kershaw's attacking brigade, while rebel artillery west of the Emmitsburg Road lobbed shells at the Peach Orchard and Caldwell's division. Lieutenant James Pernum saw the brigade commander stagger atop his horse. Pernum shouted, quote, There goes poor Zook, unquote. 
Like Edward Cross, Samuel Zook received a bullet wound in the abdomen and was forced to ride to a field hospital in the rear. The following day, after hearing the results of the battle on July 3rd, he allegedly said, quote, Then I am satisfied, and I'm ready to die, unquote. He passed shortly after. Caldwell's attack came at the right moment because the Confederates had lost their momentum. Anderson's brigade was thoroughly exhausted, and Kershaw's had taken heavy casualties from the Federal artillery. Zook's brigade hit Kershaw's right wing and forced him to pull back his rightmost regiment, 7th South Carolina, to avoid being completely outflanked. Despite being outnumbered by the South Carolinians, Zook's men concentrated their attack on only a couple of regiments, which evened the odds. Kershaw rode back to find General Paul J. Sims, whose brigade was about 50 yards to the rear. He asked him to bring up his brigade to support his right and close the gap between his troops and Anderson's and Rose's woods. After the brief conference, he continued to ride in the rear in search of the missing regiment, the 15th South Carolina. The 15th had become separated from the rest of the brigade during the initial advance, and basically became Anderson's left flank. Kershaw tried to order the 15th commander, Colonel William D. Sashore, to rejoin the brigade, but basically the moment he found the colonel, he was struck by a mini-ball in the chest and died not long after. He was replaced by Major William Gist, whose father, also named William, was a fire-eating secessionist former governor of South Carolina. He was one of the signers of South Carolina's secession ordinance. Gist was also a cousin of another South Carolina Confederate officer who might have the best name of anyone in the Civil War, States Rights Gist. Meanwhile, Kershaw's brigade was now being attacked by Zook and the Irish Brigade. He returned to see the 7th South Carolina defending their position on the right of the brigade. Kershaw later wrote, quote, they were handsomely received and entertained by this veteran regiment, which long kept them at bay in its front." Unquote. Kershaw's men had the advantage of the woods for cover. Combined with the thick haze of black powder smoke, it was nearly impossible for the attacking Federals to actually see the men they were firing at. Colonel Richard P. Roberts of the 140th Pennsylvania reminded his men to aim low and to continue to fight as they were defending their native state. Because General Zook had been removed from the field, somebody needed to take his place but it's unclear exactly who did. Colonel Roberts was a likely candidate, and it's possible he did command more than just his regiment. Lieutenant Colonel Charles Freudenberg of the 52nd New York was also said to have temporarily commanded the brigade after Zook's wounding. The 52nd was mostly made up of Germans, hence its nickname the German Rangers. Freudenberg's tenure as the brigade commander was short-lived because he too was wounded in the wheat field. Colonel Roberts continued to encourage his men while they fired at will against the 3rd South Carolina Infantry, until Roberts was hit and killed instantly. Zook's brigade was taking heavy casualties, but they continued to press the rebel line on the north side of the Stony Hill. To the south came the green Fenian flags, adorned with harps and the Gaelic phrase, which I am sure to butcher, Rivnar Grud Osparnlon, meaning, who never retreated from the clash of spears. Colonel Patrick Kelly's Irishmen joined the fight. A poet would later write, quote, Here on the field of Gettysburg where treason's banner flew, Where rushed in wrath the southern gray to smite the northern blue, Where air that blew by valor nerved in serried ranks was seen, There flashed between it and the foe the daring Irish green. Unquote. Unlike most infantrymen on either side, the Irish soldiers carried 69 caliber smoothbore muskets. While far less accurate at long distances, they could be used to great effect in close combat. Instead of mini balls, they were loaded with buck and ball shot. Buck and ball consisted of one large round lead ball and several smaller lead pellets, so when it fired, it acted much in the same way that a shotgun does. As they approached the 7th South Carolina Infantry, a soldier spotted the Confederates in the woods and shouted, There they are! And the brigade came to a halt, and each soldier fired at will. Though the rebels had the advantage of better cover with trees and large boulders on the stony hill, the rocks created a defilade for the advancing Fenians. The rebels had to expose themselves by climbing on top of the rocks in order to actually shoot their attackers. The fighting was intense and extremely close. One Union soldier claimed that he was six feet away from a rebel when he blasted him with a round of buck and ball. After a few minutes, Colonel Kelly ordered a charge and the green flags went up the hill and sent the Confederates back in retreat. The charge created a scene full of chaos and confusion, and all of a sudden the firing ceased. Major St. Clair Mulholland shouted at the Confederate troops to lay down their arms and go to the rear as prisoners. He would later write, quote, This ended a scene that was becoming embarrassing. The order was promptly obeyed, and a large number of what I think were men of Kershaw's brigade became our prisoners. Unquote. Kershaw ordered his regiments off of Stony Hill, and they fell back toward the Rose Farmhouse to reform. 
Meanwhile, on the other side of the wheat field, Cross's brigade had nearly run out of ammunition, and their attack had lost momentum. Up until that point, Brooks's brigade was being held in reserve in Trossel's woods, to the east of the wheat field. Caldwell sent orders to Brooke to advance into the wheat field, relieve Cross's worn-out troops, and attack the rebels still in Rose's woods. While they were waiting to go in, most of the men had been lying down to avoid catching stray bullets from the battle in their front. Just before their advance, Colonel Brooke delivered a short speech to his soldiers. Quote, Boys, remember the enemy has invaded our own soil. The eyes of the world are upon us, and we are expected to stand up bravely to our duty. Unquote. After the short pep talk, the men were ordered to their feet, and they marched forward into the wheat field. After walking over or around Cross's brigade, they were fired upon by Anderson's Georgians. They halted and returned fire. Then the Federals continued forward, firing while they marched. For a few minutes, both sides exchanged musket fire until Brooks sent out orders to fix bayonets. Over 800 soldiers from Connecticut, New York, Delaware, and Pennsylvania surged forward and drove the rebels from their front. Colonel Brooke himself carried the colors of the 53rd Pennsylvania, as they chased the remnants of Hood's division through Rose's Woods and across Plum Run. Some Confederate regiments attempted to reform on top of the ravine west of the stream, but their defensive stand was unable to stop the Yankee charge. Brooks's men finally came to a stop at the western edge of Rose's Woods, and for a brief moment, and I really want to emphasize brief, the Federals had nearly regained all the ground they'd lost over the last couple of hours. The Third Corps still held the Peach Orchard, the 5th held Little Round Top and the Wheat Field, and Rose's Woods were in the possession of the 2nd Corps. Anderson's division and regiments for Benning's and Robertson's brigades still involved in the action fell back toward the Devil's Den and the Triangular Stonewall for cover. But again, this was a brief moment of success. The Confederates had already begun their attack on the Sherfy Peach Orchard and were about to launch a counterattack on the Wheat Field. Brooks's men faced General Paul Sims' brigade to the west. Upon receiving a request from Kershaw, Sims led his brigade of Georgians toward Rose's Woods. While marching into the fight, Sims was hit by a mini-ball in the thigh. After applying a tourniquet to the wound to stop the bleeding, he was taken to a field hospital in the rear. Sims would be transported out of Gettysburg not long after and arrived in Martinsburg, Virginia, modern-day West Virginia, on the 8th. According to a letter he wrote to his wife on July 9th, he seemed to be in good spirits. Quote, the wound has done remarkably well, though I traveled part of four days in an ambulance, which was very uncomfortable, not leaving it after being placed in it at the hospital until I got here. I now write flat on my back in a Confederate room in a private family who treat me with kindness. I was wounded in the leg, but stopped the flow of blood in the field by a tourniquet applied by myself and drawn by one of my men of the 10th Georgia, and lost but little blood. My brigade suffered severely, and behaved well. Much love to all. Your affectionate husband, Paul J. Sims. God will fully spare my life. We all have cause to be thankful to him. Unquote. The following day, July 10th, Paul Jones Sims died. For a moment, let's jump to another part of the battlefield. At roughly the same time that Caldwell's division made their assault against Kershaw's and Anderson's brigades in the Wheatfield and the Stony Hill, McClaws launched his assault against the salient of the Federal line at the Peach Orchard. While the battle raged to the south at the Devil's Den and Little Round Top, an artillery duel was waged between the Union guns along the Emmitsburg and Wheatfield roads and the Confederate guns on Seminary Ridge. Colonel Edward Porter Alexander, whose artillery battalion was involved in the action, would write after the war, quote, I don't think there was ever in our war a hotter, harder, sharper artillery afternoon than this. Quote. At one end, the Federals had nine batteries, which consisted of approximately 52 guns within about a half mile of each other. To the west, Colonel Alexander and Colonel Henry Cabell commanded 34 guns. When artillery was firing at infantry, they would generally use shell or canister at close range. But when firing at artillery, usually called counter-battery fire, they generally used solid shot. The goal was usually to place a round directly on an enemy's gun, which would hopefully disable it. If the round missed, it might rip through the body of one of the gunners, strike a caisson filled with additional ammunition, or kill one of the horses tasked with carrying the guns. If enough horses were killed, they'd be unable to remove the guns from the field, and they'd be vulnerable to capture. For more than an hour, the rifled guns and smoothbore Napoleons traded solid shot and shell. This is from Colonel Cabell's post-battle report. Quote, 
On our right and slightly in front, the enemy occupied a rocky mountain. He's referring to Little Round Top. With several batteries, and directly in front, about 600 or 700 yards distant, were a large number of batteries, occupying a peach orchard. Receiving orders, we opened up a most effective fire upon these batteries. Exposed ourselves to a flanking fire from the enemy's mountain batteries, our position gave us a similar advantage in firing upon a large part of his line, which was drawn up nearly parallel with the Emmitsburg Road. The battalion, being first to open fire, received for a short time a concentrated fire from the enemy's batteries. The fire from our lines and from the enemy became incessant, rendering it necessary for us sometimes to pause and allow the smoke to clear away. In order to enable the gunners to take aim during the same time, the two guns were ordered to play upon the batteries of the Stony Mountain. I have reason to believe with great effect. The loss of my battalion was very heavy during this cannonading. Captain Fraser, who had always in previous engagements, as in this, set an example of the highest courage, coolness, and gallantry, fell dangerously wounded by the bursting of a shell. The same shell killed two sergeants and one man. Lieutenant R.H. Cooper, of the same battery, was wounded during the same engagement. Unquote. The barrage was particularly frightening to the infantry posted nearby, who, unlike the gunners, couldn't distract themselves by the work of reloading and firing their artillery pieces. Their only recourse was to hug the ground and pray that an iron ball wouldn't skip their way. All afternoon, Artillery Reserve Chief General Henry Hunt rode around the vicinity of the Peach Orchard and Wheatfield, placing his guns to repel the oncoming Confederate attacks. Much of the artillery reserve batteries were posted along the Wheatfield Road, which intersected with the Emmitsburg Road and ran southeast. When the 15th Battery New York Light Artillery, commanded by Captain Patrick Hart, arrived, Hunt told Captain Hart, quote, It will be a gold chain or a wooden leg for you. Sacrifice everything before you give up that position, unquote. On Hart's left was Captain A. Judson Clark's Battery B of the 1st New Jersey Light Artillery. Hunt similarly implored Captain Clark to, quote, Hold this position while you have a shot in your limbers, or a man to work your guns." Unquote. During Kershaw's first attack, Clark walked the line behind his six guns. Sergeant William Clareville was the chief of one of his artillery pieces. As they fired round after round, he chanted to Corporal Elias Tim, quote, This is the stuff to feed them. Feed it to their bellies, Tim. Mow them down, Tim. Unquote. Confederate artillery shell burst near one of Clark's caissons, causing it to explode. The blast killed at least one horse and wounded several others, and the horse team panicked, bolted away from the battery. After they dragged the case on about 50 feet, the drivers managed to get them under control, when another shell came screaming in and struck Sergeant Clareville's artillery piece. The shell ricocheted off the axle and exploded. Several nearby artillerymen were wounded. Corporal Tim and Private William Riley were both thrown in the air and landed about 20 feet away from their cannon. Tim was stunned for a few moments, but once he'd recovered, he called out to Riley to see if he was seriously hurt. Riley had received a shrapnel wound in the fleshy part of the thigh. Something easy, the fleshy part of the thigh. I'm a marksman. Riley cried back to Tim, quote, By Jiminy, I didn't think they could touch me without taking a limb. And now, damn them, they have taken half the meat I did have. Unquote. Riley stood stunned for a few moments more, until Lieutenant Robert Sims, his section chief, shouted at him, quote, Riley, why the bloody hell don't you roll that gun by hand to the front? Unquote. Riley replied, quote, Lieutenant, if your hip was shot off like that, what the bloody hell would you do? Unquote. Riley returned to his gun, but their bucket had been shot and lost all its water. After a cannon was fired, it was necessary to clean the inside of the barrel of powder residue and extinguish any remaining embers. On the backside of the rammer staff was a sponge, which was usually made from a coarse, well-twisted woolen yarn. The sponge would be dipped in the bucket and then rammed into the barrel. The gun crew had to find a replacement bucket and then were forced to use water from their own canteens to fill it, something they must have been reluctant to do given that water was in short supply on that day. The Federal batteries, aided with some infantry support, repelled the attack of Kershaw's left flank and forced it to fall back with heavy casualties. But the action at the Peach Orchard was just heating up. The Confederate guns concentrated their fire on the high ground held by Brigadier General Charles Graham's brigade of Bernie's division. They were supported on their right by two brigades of Brigadier General Andrew Humphrey's division, Colonel William Brewster and Brigadier General Joseph Carr's brigades, respectively. Mixed in were also several regiments of Burling's Brigade and at least one regiment of Ward's Brigade, which had previously held Houck's Ridge. They held a defensive line along the Emmitsburg Road and were supported by several batteries of artillery. 
General William Barstale's brigade of roughly 1,600 Mississippians waited in Pitzer's Woods, about 600 yards to the west of the Peach Orchard. He had been anxious to get into the fight, but was forced to wait until it was their turn while Hood's division and McClaw's other brigades went into action to his south. Finally, around 6 p.m., he was given orders from General McClaws to begin their attack. There remained some confusion as to why he didn't advance simultaneously with Kershaw's brigade. Seems as if there was some miscommunication, but it's unclear what happened. As I described earlier, because they had no support on their left, the result was that Kershaw's brigade got torn apart by artillery posted along the Wheatfield Road. But finally, around 6.30 p.m., the drummers of Barksdale's brigade beat the call for the assembly. He told his regimental commanders that he and his staff would ride on horseback, but that all of their officers would be on foot. He pointed to the high ground at the peach orchard, told his subordinates, quote, The line before you must be broken. To do so, let every officer and man animate his comrades by his personal presence on the front line. Unquote. When the order to advance finally came, Barksdale's face was radiant with joy. He rode ahead of his men, gave a short pep talk, and then yelled, quote, Attention Mississippians! Battalions! Forward! Unquote. Nearly in complete unison, they marched forward. Barksdale continued to ride in front, waving his hat around in the air. He no longer wore a wig as he'd done while he was in Congress, so his wispy white hair blew in the wind. Soldiers cried out the all-too-familiar rebel yell as they drove away the Federal skirmishers from their front, and then came upon the main line of Graham's brigade. Confederate skirmishers fired at the batteries along the Emmitsburg Road, which had already been greatly reduced during the artillery duel earlier. They killed horses and gunners alike. Their fire was largely concentrated on Lieutenant John Buckland's Battery E, the 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery. In addition, the Confederate artillery had reopened their fire in the Union defensive line, so bullets, shells, and solid shot were coming down like a thick rain. Captain George Randolph, the 3rd Corps' artillery brigade commander, managed to convince the members of the 114th Pennsylvania to advance and hold the Mississippians off long enough for Buckland's battery to be withdrawn. They managed to pull their guns away to safety, but Battery E suffered heavily on July 2nd. 28 men and officers were wounded or killed and one was missing. More than 40 of its horses were also killed, which forced them to leave behind a caisson. Lieutenant Buckland had three horses shot out from under him as he tried to limber his guns and pull them to safety. He was also wounded in the chest by a piece of shrapnel from a rebel artillery shell, but he survived and returned to action six months later. After the battle, he wrote, quote, My battery is torn and shattered, and my brave boys have gone never to return. Curse the Rebs. Unquote. The Mississippians continued to advance forward, drove the New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians back. Some of the Yankee infantrymen had taken up positions in the buildings of the Sherfee and Wentz farms, but this cover was not enough to stem the Confederate tide. At the same time that Barksdale was advancing, the other three brigades of McClaw's division went into action. General William Wofford's Georgians advanced on Barksdale's right, slightly behind his brigade. General Longstreet, who had been monitoring the progress of the attack for the last couple of hours, rode out ahead of Wofford's soldiers, causing them to cheer their commander, but he reminded them to, quote, cheer less men, fight more, quote. Sims and Kershaw's troops had reformed and also advanced back toward the wheat field with support from Tyg Anderson's brigade. Confederate Third Corps finally joined the fight as well. General Richard Anderson had been awaiting the signal for his division to go in. Anderson was 41 years old and a native of South Carolina. He'd grown up in a large cotton plantation called Burrow House Plantation in the high hills of Santee region of South Carolina. His father was a doctor and a wealthy slave-owning cotton planter. Richard Anderson attended West Point and graduated in the class of 1842, 40th out of 56. He served as a cavalry officer in various posts on the frontier until the Mexican War. After serving in Winfield Scott's army, he continued his frontier duty, was stationed in Kansas during the sectional crisis there, and also served in the expedition against the Mormons. Following South Carolina's secession, he left the U.S. Army and was given command of a South Carolina Infantry Regiment. Following the surrender of Fort Sumter, he was given command of Charleston Harbor. In the spring of 1862, he led an infantry brigade in Longstreet's wing during the Peninsula Campaign. It was at the Battle of Seven Pines that he earned the nickname Fighting Dick, top-tier nom de guerre. Shortly after, he was promoted to division command, and at Gettysburg, he led that same division, though his command was affected by the reorganization of the army after Chancellorsville as he was moved from Longstreet's 1st Corps to A.P. Hill's newly created 3rd Corps. On July 2nd, he was under the impression that his division would go forward as Longstreet's corps was marching up the Emmitsburg Road towards Cemetery Hill, since the situation had drastically changed, he was to go in when McClaw's division on his right advanced. Anderson ordered General Cadmus Wilcox's brigade to advance toward the Emmitsburg Road on Barksdale's left. 
Nearly 7,000 Confederate infantrymen were advancing almost simultaneously against the weakened Federal line. The 68th Pennsylvania was positioned at the Peach Orchard itself. Barksdale's rightmost regiment, 21st Mississippi, came across the Emmitsburg Road and threatened the Pennsylvanians' left flank. Wofford's brigade could also be seen advancing further to their left. Colonel Andrew Tippin, fearing that his regiment was about to be outflanked, ordered the 68th to fall back through the Peach Orchard. The Pennsylvanians were temporarily out of danger, but their position had been an important one. Now the right flank of the infantry and artillery posted on the Wheatfield Road was exposed, and the 2nd New Hampshire, 3rd Maine, and 141st Pennsylvania were also forced to fall back and reform facing west. The remaining batteries also limbered up and pulled back to more defensible positions to the east, though several were virtually out of ammunition anyway. The Mississippians continued their attack against the center of Graham's brigade. They drove the Federals out of their positions on the Sherfy and Wentz farms. An intense firefight broke out between the two sides. They were trading shots at nearly point-blank range. One by one, the Union regiments melted away. Barksdale feared that the momentum of their attack was waning, so he urged his men on. They had broken through the Union line along the Emmitsburg Road, but instead of continuing eastward, three of the four Mississippi regiments wheeled left and slammed into the flank of the remaining regiments of Graham's brigade. Colonel Peter Sides and his 57th Pennsylvania Infantry held some of the buildings on the Sherfy farm, but one of his subordinates, Captain Alanson Nelson, informed him, quote, It looks so we will soon have to move out of here or be captured, unquote. Colonel Sides concurred, quote, Yes, I think we will go now, unquote. Because the noise of the battle was so loud, and the soldiers were posted in various rooms of one of the farm buildings, they couldn't order a general retreat, so Nelson went room to room, gathering up as many men as he could until the last possible moment. Colonel Sides was wounded, as was his second-in-command, Major William Nieper, who was also captured. Captain Nelson then took command of the regiment, though he'd be wounded in the retreat as well. The 105th Pennsylvania was the last regiment of Graham's brigade to leave their position on the Emmitsburg Road. Colonel Calvin Craig ordered them to fall back, but they temporarily rallied and managed to hold off the attacking Mississippians for a moment. Craig said of his troops, quote, The boys fought like demons. Their battle cry was, Pennsylvania. Unquote. They continued to fight on, but they too would join the retreat back to Cemetery Ridge. A few other scattered regiments of Graham's, Burling's, and Ward's brigades also managed to rally and reform just east of the Peach Orchard. Colonel Tippin was ordered by General Graham to hold off the Mississippians, but then Graham was severely wounded, turned over command of the brigade to Tippin. Graham rode off to the rear, but in the chaos of the battle went missing. His fate was unknown for some time, but this was his account from a letter he wrote to his wife later that summer. Quote, I was wounded twice. Once on the right hit by a piece of shell producing a severe contusion the size of your hand, and the second time by a rifle ball, which striking the right sleeve of my coat passed close to the right shoulder and plowing its way through the muscles and emerging directly over the spine, excavating a canal about four inches in length on my left shoulder by which it took its departure. The length of this wound is over eight inches. The first wound was received about an hour and a half before my capture, and the other about an hour before. But so intent were all my thoughts upon the conflict that I paid no attention to them, believing they were mere grazes occasioned by fragments of shell with which the air was filled at that time. My sword was also knocked out of my hand by a rifle ball or piece of shell a few minutes after receiving the second wound. In retiring for the field, surmounting the crest of a hill, I saw a regiment in line of battle approaching me. Thinking from its position that it was one of ours, I checked my horse to allow it to come up when I was undeceived as to its character by a well-known battle flag and butternut uniforms of the rebels. Turning my horse, I drove the spurs into its flank, at the same time throwing my body well forward and to one side of its neck to expose as little of my person as possible to the fire consequent upon my recognition by the enemy. As I did so, a volley was discharged at me, and my horse, either falling from its effects or stumbling from fright, rolled me over on the ground. Arising, I essayed to stand, but fell back completely exhausted by fatigue and weakness. At this moment, a rebel private came up and, supposing from the single star on my shoulder that I was a major, a single star in the collar designating that rank in their service, exclaimed, Major, give me that air gold cord off your hat. I replied that I was no major, but a general officer, and would surrender to an officer of proper rank. Immediately thereafter, an officer came up, and to him I surrendered. Perceiving that I was feeble and could scarcely stand, he sat down by me a few minutes, and when we started off to the rear, he offered me his arm upon which I gladly leaned. As we moved slowly along, he stopped several times to give a little water from his canteen to our wounded. The name of this gallant officer was Charles R. Dudley, captain in one of the Mississippi regiments. 
Reaching the woods which skirted the battlefield, he transferred me to the care of one of the wounded soldiers of his own regiment and returned to the field. Unquote. Grant was a prisoner of war and would eventually be transported to Richmond, where he'd spend two months in Libby Prison, which, aside from the notorious Camp Sumter in Andersonville, Georgia, was probably the most infamous Confederate POW camp. In September 1863, he was released after a prisoner exchange, which involved a Confederate general also captured at Gettysburg, James Archer. He returned to action the following year in the Army of the James, under Major General Benjamin Butler. Afterward, he would be involved in the attack on Fort Fisher in 1864, served as the commander of the defenses at Bermuda 100 along the James River, and then after that, the Union defenses at Norfolk, Virginia. Graham's brigade continued to disintegrate in the face of Barksdale's attack. The reformed defensive line was smashed again, and this time it would not rally. Again, the Yankees retreated, but the 141st Pennsylvania held on alone. A retreating officer asked its commander, Colonel Henry J. Medill, why his regiment was not falling back. Medill simply replied, quote, I have no order to get out, unquote. The 141st had only fought in two battles prior to Gettysburg, but had suffered greatly at Chancellorsville, where 50% of the regiment became casualties. They injured the fight on July 2nd with only 209 men. Colonel Medill surmised that, quote, If I had my old regiment back again, I could whip all of them, unquote. Instead, it was Medill's men that were whipped. In the thick smoke that hung over the battlefield, a battle line was seen advancing toward them. Major Israel Spaulding, Medill's second-in-command, ordered his men to cease their fire in case it was a friendly regiment. It was not. A volley of musket fire tore apart the 141st Pennsylvania. Twenty-seven men fell instantly. All the soldiers in the color guard were dead or wounded. Major Spaulding was severely wounded by a mini-ball which shattered his femur and left him unable to walk. He was propped up against a tree and left behind when the regiment retreated. Major Israel Spaulding was captured by the Confederates and died three weeks later, likely from an infection. General Dan Sickles, who had been anxiously observing the collapse of his Third Corps over the past couple of hours, saw Colonel Medill as they were retreating to Cemetery Ridge. Sickles said to him, quote, Colonel, for God's sake, can't you hold on? Unquote. Medill replied, quote, Where are my men? Unquote. Of the 209 men who entered the fight, only 60 were left. Sickles, several staff officers, and wounded Captain George Randolph rode back to the Trossel Barn. Between the Emmitsburg Road and Cemetery Ridge, about a half mile from the Sherfy Peach Orchard, was the 143-acre farm owned by Peter Trossel. Abraham Trossel, Peter's son, his wife Catherine, and their nine children lived there at the time of the battle. They were forced to flee earlier in the day just before it had begun. General Sickles made the farmhouse his headquarters when the Third Corps advanced to its forward position at the Peach Orchard. He and his cadre of officers took cover behind the Trossel barn. Shortly after arriving there, Sickles felt a sharp sting in his knee and looked down to see what it was. His adrenaline must have been up because what he saw was pretty horrifying. A solid shot from a Confederate artillery piece had struck him in the right knee, and his lower leg had nearly been torn off. The cannonball had come in so quick and cleanly that his horse wasn't even spooked by it. Sickles climbed down from his horse and applied handkerchiefs to his knee to stop the bleeding. Private William Bullard, a member of the 70th New York's band, who was acting as a stretcher bearer at that moment, came to Sickles' aid and applied a tourniquet to his leg. Sickles was pale from blood loss and shock, though he remained conscious. He was adamant that he must not be captured. At that moment, General David Burney arrived. After taking a sip of brandy from his flask, Sickles shouted to him, quote, General Burney, you will take command, sir. Unquote. After talking for a few moments, Bernie mounted his horse and rode off to the front. Sickles' wounding drew attention from nearby soldiers, so he asked Private Bullard to grab one of his cigars, which he lit and smoked as he was removed from the battlefield. He felt that doing so would make it look like his injury was not as serious and his stoicness would inspire the troops. Sickles often told grandiose stories of his actions, particularly at Gettysburg, after the war, so it's entirely possible that his claims were embellished, if not outright fabrications. But he was taken to a field hospital near the Tawnytown Road, where it was determined that his leg would have to be amputated. Chaplain Joseph Twitchell was with Sickles at the hospital and recorded that the general told him, quote, If I die, let me die on the field. God bless our noble cause. Unquote. Shortly after, chloroform was administered, and his right leg, just above the knee, was amputated by Dr. Thomas Sim. The surgery went well, and Sickles survived. He was alert enough the following day to learn of the fate of the battle, and then requested to be transported to Washington. He arrived at the Capitol the following day, and was greeted by President Lincoln and his son Tad. His amputated leg also made its way to Washington. Someone had saved it, and it ended up in Sickles' possession. The year before, a new museum called the Army Medical Museum was founded. 
Sickles sent the preserved bones of his lower leg to the museum with an attached note that read, quote, with the compliments of Major General D.E.S., unquote. The bones were put on display at the museum, and Sickles was said to have visited them for many years after the war. Mark Twain wrote, quote, I noticed then what I had noticed once before, four or five months ago, that the general valued his lost leg away and above the one that is left. I am perfectly sure that if he had to part with either of them, he would part with the one that he has got, unquote. Devil Dan Sickles recovered, though he never returned to combat command, for which he harbored a great deal of resentment toward Ulysses Grant, but he did remain in the army until 1869. So this is where Dan Sickles exits the Gettysburg Campaign. To this day, he remains one of the most controversial figures on either side due to his actions on July 2nd. While some, with the benefit of hindsight, have defended his decision to advance to the Peach Orchard against his orders, I'm in the camp that this move was ultimately a mistake. Because he'd shed blood on the field of Gettysburg and lost a limb, some were reluctant to criticize him in public. Sickles himself was quite active in criticizing others he felt had wronged or slighted him, most notably General George Meade. Using the pseudonym Historicus, he wrote to newspapers after the battle and made damning accusations of cowardice and incompetence toward his former commander. I have a lot more to say about Sickles because he played a large role in some of the congressional hearings in 1864, as well as the preservation of the Gettysburg battlefield after the war but I'll save that for a later episode. And this is where we're going to leave off for today. Next week, we'll pick up exactly where I left off and continue the action with the fighting at the Wheatfield, the Peach Orchard, and finally the final push for Cemetery Ridge on July 2nd. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History. the great on his the horn of the hunter is heard on the hill. The dark from her light wing, the bright dew is shaking. Kathleen, my what slumber.